15 years ago, I was calling on corporate CEOs and facilities managers and others to try to sell them solar. And you know, they would call me a crazy tree hugging hippie and hang up on me and tell me that there's no way that we could produce power out of thin air. Basically call me a snake oil salesman. Fast forward 15 years and those same CEOs and facilities managers and sustainability managers, they'll have a hundred presentations on their deck and they will know the lingo. They will understand project structures. They'll be quite sophisticated about the options. And that's a huge shame. We are here to try to explain to you what it is we do here. The solar industry in the U.S. employs more people than Google, Apple, Facebook, and Twitter combined. The most valuable commodity I know of is information. Wouldn't you agree? Welcome into the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. I am your host, Fred Davis. Episode 65 coming at you right now. Part two of our iSun special continues today with the president of iSun, Mr. Daniel Deuce, longtime solar veteran, one of the best names in the industry, lots of good information, as well as just fascinating stories about his career in the solar business and kind of what it has in store. But before we get to the conversation with Mr. Daniel Deuce, let's take time out with our COO and co-founder, Miss Ann Niemer, telling you about what we do here at eRenewable. Hi, Ann Niemer here, co-founder and COO of eRenewable. At eRenewable, we know everyone has sustainability needs and wants. We want to help you reach your ESG goal. Our goal is to bring technology to the sustainability space by hosting real-time online auctions for both buyers and sellers. Our electronic management tool helps streamline the RFP process. Whether you need to procure energy or find an off-taker for a renewable project, our platform will provide pricing efficiencies to your organization. Our other projects include solar or battery storage development, renewable natural gas or responsibly sourced gas, LED lighting, and HVAC efficiency upgrades, or unbundled RECs or RSG certificates, all helping our customers reach their sustainability goals and meeting their ESG needs. Please visit our website at eRenew.net or call us at 1-866-ERENEW1. As always, thank you for listening to The Green Insider, powered by eRenewable. Thank you so much for that, Miss Ann Niemer. You can learn more about the company over at eRenew.net. Give us a follow over at LinkedIn, and of course, you can follow us on Twitter as well, at eRenew2020. That's at eRenew2020. All right, let's jump into the conversation with Mr. Daniel Deuce, longtime veteran of the solar industry. He was doing it back when they were still calling him a tree-hugging hippie. Yes, that's right, Mr. Daniel Deuce, when he was trying to sell solar way back when. Some great stories from him uh, about the early struggles and challenges of the solar industry to where we are now, 15 plus years later in his decorated career, president of iSun, but again, great stuff as far as what he's been through, what the industry's been through, the challenges they're facing, and what's ahead, and heck, we even learn what a bragawatt is. So without further ado, here is president of iSun, Mr. Daniel Deuce. What is it about the solar industry? What is it about the renewable industry that got you into it, and you've become kind of a rock star since you jumped into it? 15 years in solar and never a regret. I'm kidding. Absolutely lots of it. But uh, initially, I had been sent a business plan by a friend of a friend. I was just wrapping up my MBA and he knew I had done some angel investing. He was looking for uh, a third party investor. And I read it and I, as a result, did a bunch of research on EIA's database, determining how much actual proven reserves we had of fossil fuels 
what that looked like at the rates of expansion and consumption at the time and projecting that forward and, and realizing that we certainly will run out of economically attractive fossil fuels for extraction and that therefore the transition to renewables was inevitable. It was only a question of when, not if. And at the same time, module pricing was starting to decline precipitously. So you put the two together and it seemed like a good idea at the time. I made exactly $0 in my first year in solars and almost lost all of my savings from my 20s from various startups because my first entree into solar was a utility scale development business of my own that it was self-financing right into the financial crisis. So you know, that didn't work out that well, but it did translate into an exciting role building, helping build Martifer Solar in the U.S. under Martifer in Portugal, uh, which also established and built S-Power, uh, which is the largest privately held solar platform in the U.S. for a long time. So, yes, it's been a, it's been a long journey, but one that's been full of excitement, of course, lots of carbon, carbon reduction and, and carbon offsets. So, it's hard not to continue to be excited about it every day. Get into this in your 20s and you nearly deplete all the money you've got. Some folks may have said, you know what, hey, cut their losses and move on. What was it about that experience that you knew you had to stick around? It was definitely a close call. I thought, I thought twice about staying in the space. My grandfather reminded me that when I was young, he had asked me when I was like six years old or something, he asked me what I wanted to do, of course, when I grow up, right? Common question for your grandkids. And I guess I said I wanted to make a ton of money doing something really good for the world. And his thought at the time, this was probably the 80s, was, well, you know, NGOs and nonprofits don't, don't pay that well. But now fast forward 30 years, and, uh, and he says, I finally found the calling that I was looking for when I was six. So it's, it's addicting, right? I think working in the space is addicting because it's a generational wealth creation opportunity. And at the same time, you know, industry participants fully believe that we are saving the world from certain destruction. So you combine those two things and you end up at your desk 80 hours plus a week, right? Like that's the, that's the outcome. Amen to that. Yeah. What was kind of the, so if you're sitting there in your late 20s, vacillating over what to do, what was the final straw that kind of put you in that direction? And obviously, you know, here we are almost 15, 20 years later, and it looks like it was a pretty good decision on your part. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, my entrance into Martifer was amusing because they were recruiting for a CFO, COO of a, of a division of a publicly traded company, uh, which was the solar platform in the U.S., and the CEO at the time found my profile, saw that I'd been in solar for uh, over a year and, and had some expertise there when the industry was very young. I think when I got into solar, the entire U.S. industry that year was 35 megawatts installed. And so uh, he recommended me to the board and the board said, you, you can't hire a 29-year-old kid to be CFO, CEO of a, of a division of a massive public company. And, and they told him to keep looking, right? And so he kept on with his search. And I think it was about a month later, went back to the board and said, look, there are very few people that have solar experience. This is the guy. And the board said, well, he has an MBA. He has some white hair because I had some premature white hair. And uh, they, they approved me. And it provided an opportunity. We built the largest solar services company in all of Colorado, all of Massachusetts in 2009-10. And allowed an amazing opportunity to be part of the rapid growth of the industry at that time. 
Of course, when the cash grant hit as a result of the financial crisis, that really, uh, really spurned a ton of, of growth. And we were right in the middle of that executing uh, many of the first cash grant projects. We got recognition from the White House for public-private partnerships for use of cash grant funds, some of the first cash grant funds for public agencies. So it was, uh, was an exciting ride and, and the trend was already starting, right, for sustainab- more, more sustainability objectives within some of the leading corporates. And you end up in the room with folks that you wouldn't typically end up in the room with, right? Meeting at Nancy Pelosi's house because she wants to learn more about renewable energy and she wants to support it. Meeting with Hollywood stars in LA that are interested in spreading the word about sustainability. So it was just, it was all around exciting. And of course you add the fact that that platform went from zero to a hundred million dollars in, in backlog in a few years. So that growth is, is hard to come by often. So again, it's addicting. Was uh, that interaction with the politicians and celebrities that wanted to learn more, was that kind of the impetus for you to start the, uh, the Solar Fight Club? Oh, so Solar Fight Club is four guys that wanted to get folks together to figure out how to get deals done and to talk about what was exciting and where we felt the industry was headed. The first Solar Fight Fight Night was... 11, 12 years ago now. And I think it was maybe 15 or 16 folks in a room talking about what they were passionate about, talking about how they were trying to get projects done at a time when there were very few projects getting done. And I remember I had signed up uh, my first commercial solar deal and everyone was asking, you know, how, how we possibly could have gotten such a large project contracted and it was a hundred kilowatts. So we had the end <laughs> Solar Pro Magazine, a lot of the early founders of many of the now leading companies were there, part of that conversation. Now, fast forward very much in line with the growth of the solar industry, uh, Fight Night, we now host six, 700 industry leaders. And it's a mix of early founders, CEOs, folks who are doing interesting, compelling things in the space, and then some up, up and coming talent that we've identified or our sponsors have identified. So Solar Fight Night is meant to be a celebration of the industry. It's meant to connect people to help get projects done more efficiently and better for our customer base and for our own corporations. And the name is a genesis of the fact that the industry has been a struggle, right? Like every time you think things are going really well, you have Obama, you have support, then you get something like Trump trying to support coal and fossil fuels. So there's never a lack of shortage in the space and and challenges in the space. And so it has been and remains and will continue to be a struggle to achieve the massive goals that we have before us, right? So I would imagine the first rule of Solar Fight Club is that, do you want to talk about Solar Fight Club? We, for a decade, we we talked about it very little. It was almost entirely word of mouth. Uh, And we still have a you know, largely under the radar, uh, sort of speakeasy venue type approach to uh, to the networking event. So it's not not exactly a you know so massive social media blasted out there event generally. No Facebook group for uh, Solar Fight Club is what you're saying. There is. There are some pictures on Facebook. Roger that. Roger, Roger that. So I got to believe then that this is probably, I mean, this has got to be like Christmas time for you then with, with what's going on in uh, the renewable space uh, along with the energy transition. 
yeah, 15 years ago, we all felt that someday this would happen. But I think if you asked most of the, the founders, CEOs at the time, when they thought we would be where we are today, it, it probably would have been in the you know, 2030s, 2040s, or maybe even further out. Every industry analyst at the time had projections that have been consistently beat year after year. So it is very exciting to be where we are today. It's exciting to be here now rather than decades from now. And in spite of that excitement, there's even still more, of course, that has to be done given the urgency of climate change. So yeah, it's, an, it's a very exciting place, I think, to be and there's there's nowhere else I would rather be. You're the president of iSun. What was it about iSun that uh, attracted you the most uh, to make the jump? iSun was was the first pure play renewable energy company to go public through a SPAC acquisition. The chief strategy officer had reached out to me and and started a conversation about potentially joining the board. NASDAQ recommends industry experts sit on the board to help advise the company and in the process of those conversations, I got to know the team. And I, I think my first, second, and third questions anytime I engage with any potential employer, partner, uh, customer, et cetera, is, is what is the team like? Uh, and and ISUN just seemed to have a phenomenal execution focused, minimal bureaucracy, uh, and, and really thoughtful team that was really focused on innovation within the space and execution and full integration to drive cost and out of the equation and drive efficiency into the equation for development and execution of its projects. So the, the more I learned, the more excited I got about what they were doing and had the honor of joining the board two years ago. And then when Adani was seeking to sell its US solar business, ended up selling that business to iSun so it was a natural transition from sitting on the board to, to becoming a, a full-time member of the team. Tell us a little bit about what it means for, for iSun being a turnkey provider. Yes, it's a phrase that is often used by many, many industry players, but I think rarely realized. And, and it's complicated because there are multiple sections of the value chain for the industry of course, manufacturing, there's development, there's financing, there's construction and EPC, and there's operations and maintenance. And, and iSun as the largest, the third largest player in the commercial industrial space, and as the largest union contractor in the commercial industrial solar space in the United States, has access to a deep bench of talent on the EPC side. We have internal that's full-time direct employees that, that ec can execute every portion of the development services piece, whether it's legal, whether it's engineering, turnkey engineering, whether it's land development, et cetera, all internal. I think we're now in excess of 300, 300 employees. And when we build projects, it's, it's our equipment on site for pile installation, et cetera. So that, that, turnkey full service and full bandwidth capability is extremely valuable in delivering complex projects on scope schedule budget and at a high high quality so you know that was that's always been important to me because i feel it's such a 
core advantage versus the market. Um, and Jeff has built exactly that to, in spades, right? And you're no stranger to this. I mean, you're seeing more folks doing this, but I don't know. I believe you and Jeff and what you guys are doing over at ISEN, I don't know anybody that we've spoke to that has both the experience and the knowledge and just really, just like you said, just kind of the base of experience and, and work that, that other folks do that are trying to become this quote-unquote turnkey, whereas you guys legitimately are a soup-to-nuts turnkey that has been doing it for a while now and has the you know pelts on the wall, so to speak. Yeah, yep, that's right. And one of the things that, that Jeff's also done effectively is developing customer relationships based on customer needs. Some customers come to the table and they want to deliver modules. Uh, some want to provide you know, the majority of the development work. Some want to finance the projects. And so he's built a platform that's capable of filling in around all of those customer capabilities and needs and working on sort of a best resource approach right, who can do what best and most efficiently to develop projects with ultimately always the focus being on getting projects done. Uh, as we all know, over half of the projects that hit the interconnection queue across the United States end up dead. And so our job specifically is to help projects reach NTP and, uh, and commercial operation. And so uh, we are very flexible in in our application of the engine that that we have. And I think it, it's resulted in substantial customer loyalty, even as customers have evolved, right, to take on more scope or to or to de-scope and take on less scope and focus more deeply on core competencies. We've kind of continued to evolve with those customer relationships. So for example, just been providing data and telecom services to IBM for decades and decades. And so that doesn't happen by accident, right? No, no, it certainly doesn't. Uh, you know, we're in the throes of the energy transition right now. Utility scale solar, utility scale wind. We hear about this utility scale segment a lot. Um, again, we're hearing a lot of buzzwords, but I think, you know, and, and we know that about folks that are greenwashing, what have you. But obviously, again, you guys, uh, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk over at iSun. For those that are, are still kind of trying to maneuver through the, 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 the jargon and lexicon of the renewable space, t tell us a little bit about what is the utility scale market and just kind of its importance and its role during this energy transition. Yeah, I've seen many definitions. To me, any project is a utility project that delivers electrons directly to a utility company. Um, that could be a three, a five, or a hundred megawatt project. Um, now, it, for us on our side, we often delineate at 25 or 50 megawatt single site projects. Uh, as the scale of these projects has increased, the execution of what I'll call the mega scale projects has become more and more refined and specialized. And so we have divided our teams cleanly in between commercial, industrial, sort of sub 25, sub 50 megawatt sites, and then large utility over 50 megawatt, 50 to 350 or more megawatt single sites. And the execution processes there are quite different. And, and so for us, we do have that kind of internal bifurcation, but the utility scale market right now is just, a, it's the entire industry of course is exciting, but the utility is exciting. I've, I believe there are, last time I read, there are about 40 plus gigawatts of corporate PPAs signed to be built in the United States of America. Now, given supply and logistics issues today that are happening, uh, even in raw commodity pricing, 
a significant number of those projects are challenged, uh, which of course is, is a concern for those folks that have executed those PPAs and wanna deliver on them. So it's, it is specifically our challenge to help our customers actually realize those projects and for those projects to see the light of day and deliver electrons. Uh, but that is a, a tremendous amount of contracted backlog, especially if you consider that the budget reconciliation could potentially bring a cash grant back, uh, which, which would just be a, another enormous paradigm shift for the scale of the industry. And even without the budget reconciliation, the Fed is already taking extraordinary measures to help support the transition to, to renewables. A great example of that is the SEC issued a letter last week to a variety of publicly traded companies from manufacturing to financial services that requested additional information about their, I think, perceived lack of appropriate reporting on climate-related risks. And that those types of requests for information from federal government agencies are the first step in additional regulation and Biden has already mandated that the financial services sector under the auspices of Dodd-Frank be reviewed and that climate change and climate risk be incorporated into their disclosures uh, and into their planning and that their carbon footprints are reported and that they are addressed. And so you have a, a situation where all publicly traded companies are under increased scrutiny to take action, which directly results in, of course, new business for our industry. So that's all phenomenally exciting, even given the already rapid growth. That's, it's like pouring fuel on the fire, right? So exciting, exciting place, I think across the board, but I think especially the utility market is, is, uh, is really poised for some rapid growth, continued rapid growth guys have contracted 548 megawatts of contracted projects in the last six months? Yes. So, so we have in the, that's just the utility segment of the business. Our recent announcement of the acquisition of Sun Common, uh, there are, there's $40 million a year of residential business that is being added to the iSun family. The commercial industrial business is the historic or market continues to grow. And then bolting on the acquisition of Oakwood Construction Services from Adani adds the large utility piece. And we have, you're right, we have contracted a, a 100 megawatt portfolio in the Carolinas and a 450 megawatt portfolio in Alabama to provide turnkey development and EPC services to those projects. And you know, that, that does spin out of the Oakwood acquisition uh, so when Jeff acquired Oakwood, he acquired the intellectual property, the processes, the team, the pipeline to rapidly enter the large utility space. That business had contracted itself about a half gigawatt of projects in the U.S. over the prior four years. And so um, and also self-performed and direct to labor built those projects on a turnkey basis. So that entire platform now sits with an ISUN and provides a variety of, of new business opportunities on the large utility side that have obviously been realized and also creates internal services for our existing businesses, including turnkey engineering capabilities. 
And so, you know, it's, it's the power of acquisition and executed, I think, well and efficiently, which, which is also derived from, from Jeff's SPAC acquisition in mid-2019. And so it's, you know, it's a compilation of, I think, forward-looking and aggressive market positioning, right? For every iSun, you guys are dotting I's, crossing T's, have tremendous relationships with your customers and have a plan in place. You know, some places, maybe they're just throwing something up against the wall. Hey, we're going to try to get to carbon this. We, you know, we're going to employ all this power. But it's, it's kind of a shotgun approach. Are you worried that there's too much of that going on and maybe there's not enough direction as to how this energy transition is going to unfold? Yeah, we, we call them bragawats, right? Um, a lot of announcements and less panels being commissioned. So there are two sides of that coin. I call it the, the push-pull there's the, the pull of customer demand, right? Consumers want renewable and sustainable products to a degree that we've never seen before. They will pay premiums for those products, whether it's carbon-free spaces to live and rent or whether it's consumer products or um, manufactured goods. And at, of course, retailers want to provide the products that are being demanded. And so we, we, see, it, we see that sort of invisible hand of economics working really effectively to create substantial demand. And then there's the push side of the equation as well, which is regulation, increased regulation driven by those same folks when they go to the voting polls and they, and they vote for more progressive leadership or they vote for renewable energy standards um, or folks who will put those in place. And so you, you combine those two things along with the preferred economics, of course, of the fact that solar is the cheapest electron ever generated by humanity. And, uh, and it's an unbeatable set of market conditions. So I think there'll be bumps along the way, but I believe that many corporates, their sustainability and ESG goals are absolutely bedrock and they're founded in data and they're founded in really solid planning. You know, you see JP Morgan Chase executing projects nationally at unprecedented scale and raising an unprecedented amount of funding to support uh, others' projects. It's just absolutely phenomenal and record-breaking programs that a variety of bulge bracket banks and, and corporates are rolling out. One thing that we're seeing that I, I think is particularly exciting for us as an industry is, of course, Amazon, Facebook, Google, Walmart have all had 100% renewable energy objectives for a long time, uh, many of them for years, but they are almost all of them now pu pushing those mandates down their supply chain, right? And greening their supply chains. So you go from one set of large businesses uh, but a relatively small number of them to millions and millions of logistics providers, product providers, manufacturers, commodities producers that all have to, if they want to continue to supply to, to all those uh, large corporates, they have to do something about their carbon footprints and, and demonstrate reliable e ESG. So not only is a true ESG program a a benefit in terms of competition, a strategic advantage in the marketplace for many uh, across all sorts of services and industries. But those same folks also have to avoid potential consequences from regulation down the road, and they've got to serve their customers. So I think we're in an ecosystem that the transition is absolutely, absolutely unstoppable. So we're still on the solar coaster. We'll have some years that are better than others, but the, the trend here is going to still be very exciting.
You know, I can't disagree with anything you've said with regards to uh, the position of the CNI customer in the Fortune 100s, like you named, or Fortune 50s even, with the direction mm-hmm. that they're going and the rate that they're accomplishing in that. And you're right about them pushing it down the food chain is making everything happen faster. As we talked about earlier, it's uh, so much faster than you envisioned this to be 10 years ago, right? But what I'm also seeing is when we talk to all these hundreds of municipalities, they're all making these statements by 2030, 2035, 2040, and they haven't even got a climate action plan in place yet. <laughs> and so they're making these, they're doing what the Joneses are doing, but they don't know what the Joneses are doing to get there. And so uh, that's kind of the yin and yang as to where that marketplace is right now. You have the Googles of the world on one side and the municipalities on the far end of the spectrum where they don't know how to catch up, but yet they want to. And so- yeah. uh, it's yep. kind of a fascinating dynamic that we see going on out there. Well, it's it's funny you use the municipalities as an example because a major portion of, of ISUN's genesis and DNA was when Burlington became the first city in the United States of America to announce that it was going to go 100% renewable. And ISUN integrated, I think, 85 plus percent of those projects. And it was one of those things that really helped launch the company into the space. So... It is possible. Burlington, all municipal services are 100% renewable power today, and uh, it have been for a, a very long time. So I think there are a lot of good models for folks to emulate out there. But I, I certainly agree. It, it's not going to be achieved probably on any sort of, of schedule that, that some of these announcements are, are happening. But the fact that they're being made at all and the fact that many of them are being legislated, uh, it's, it's extremely powerful. And it's forcing corporates and, and government, both public and private agencies, to take action. So, yeah, we're, I mean, it's, it's, it's your job to tell the story and educate, right? It's one of the things you guys do so well. And it's, it's our job to help execute. Uh, and that's what we're here for, executing complicated projects and, and helping folks figure out how to get these, these goals done. Um, which also drives, to me, it drives back significantly to the large utility space. On average, in, in 15 years, I've, I've spent a lot of time on large corporate portfolios, Hertz, rental car agencies nationwide, solar program, and Westfield malls and others. And on average, we've been able to offset about a third of on-site consumption at commercial industrial manufacturing facilities. Of course, we have major urban metro areas where very little solar can be deployed effectively. And that really drives the need for the utility space. And I think will be a, a massive piece of solving these problems, right? We will, the utility market will deliver gigawatt hours of renewable energy credits to folks that can't otherwise have on-site solar. So I think you're right that it's a challenge. You know, will California be carbon neutral on target? Maybe, maybe not. I sure hope so. But I do believe fully that our industry will do its absolute best to help make that happen. Mr. Deuce, we'll get you out of here with this twofold. One, how much different are the conversations you're having or seeing as far as more of a broad mainstream understanding and acceptance of renewable energy? And I know, I mean, obviously it's bigger than when, you know, when you started, but are you starting to see that people that, again, not the folks that you deal with at the Solar Fight Club, but just the the Larrys and the Joes at home that are starting to figure this out? And, And how do we get those folks to jump on board with the importance of renewable energy. And then two, three months left of 2021, 2022, right around the corner. What's on deck for Daniel Deuce, Jeff Peck, and the iSun team? Yeah, great questions. 
So awareness has certainly undergone an, a paradigm shift, right? 15 years ago, I was calling on corporate CEOs and facilities managers and others to try to sell them solar. And you know, they would call me a crazy tree-hugging hippie and hang up on me and tell me that there's no way that we could produce power out of thin air. Basically call me a snake oil salesman. Fast forward 15 years and those same CEOs and facilities managers and sustainability managers, they'll have a hundred presentations on their deck and they will know the lingo. They will understand project structures. They'll be quite sophisticated about the options. And that's a huge change because these are decision makers on an enormous portion of the company's load profile. You know, when you're, when you trickle down to residential homeowners, uh, there's certainly a lot of mysticism. There's certainly a lot of false information, false rhetoric. You know, I'm, I'm sure you guys have seen the statistic that lies and, and misinformation are 40 times more likely to be spread on social media than facts and data. And that's a huge problem for us. I've absolutely been in town hall meetings where, you know, folks have been pushing back against solar projects for reasons that are have no basis in reality whatsoever, but they believe emotionally entirely in, in their counter argument. And so, you know, there's, to me, there's no such thing as too much uh, information education. There's no such thing as pushing as hard as we possibly can to get the right public figures and politicians and seats to help support our industry and the health of our environment as a byproduct. And so, you know, it, it's, it does continue to amaze me that there are there's that much false information out there, and I hope it's something that can be can be addressed at some point. I, I don't know what the what the answer or the solution is to that. There used to be a Fairness and Reporting Act law out there that Reagan eliminated that required all media to try to present fair and unbiased reporting, and that I that's out the window, right? To me, both Fox and CNN are both equally as off the rocker in opposite directions. And, and I think we, if we don't find a way as a society and a nation to combat that, uh, you know, it's not just our industry that will suffer. It's, it's our air quality, our water quality, and, and our, our political system. So we will, we'll see where that one goes. I think everyone go vote. I mean, I don't know what else to say. Everyone go vote and hopefully you know, DC can step up the pace and Democrats can get out of their own way and we can see some progress. But on the other side, what's in store for us? Yeah, we have we have taken huge bites here in 2021 with massive acquisition. Now, you were saying before about the challenge of these astronomical goals and how do they translate into actual performance. And for for Jeff and, and the management team at ISUN, I would say it's it's all about people and teams and relationships. The acquisitions Jeff has made stem from often decades-long relationships. Suncom and, and ISUN had deep roots together when both businesses were, were first forming a decade ago, and they helped execute mutually some of their first projects together. So, you know, when you've known folks that long, you, you know what to expect out of them. You understand their commitment to excellence and, and you can make a transition like that very effectively and, and grow more together, right? At making one plus one more than two. And of course, I had sat on, on Jeff's board for two years, so he knew me well before acquiring Oakwood. So I, I think 
leveraging these relationships now that in many cases are decades, even our, our staff and employees are often multi, multi decades with us to help facilitate the continued establishment of world-class leading efficient systems to execute these projects, both through development services and EPC construction services and adopting te new technology appropriately um, and de-risking projects along the way, that's our job and that's what we'll continue to do across, I think, all the segments of the business. The, the EV charging and storage business within ISUN, which is, is turnkey as well in terms of products, uh, in, integration, as well as software platforms to, to integrate a diverse set of technologies is extremely exciting. And I'm positive you're going to see a lot of more growth there as well. So I am very confident we will continue to, to push the envelope within each of the segments of ISON, residential, CNI, utility, and EV plus storage. So I would say all of the above for us over here. We're going to continue to, to leverage our platforms and, and lead the way in, in growth. Thank you so much for that, Mr. Daniel Deuce. Don't forget, you can catch all of the Green Insider episodes over at Apple, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, eRenew.net, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you listen to us over at Apple iTunes, we ask that you leave us a five-star rating. Why? We promise that you learn more about renewable energy from the podcast than you knew about it before you checked in. And as always, give a huge shout-out to the Green Insider and eRenewable team and Mike Al and the entire group. Thank you guys so much. And of course, the entire audience, everybody, for help making the Green Insider one of the fastest growing renewable energy podcasts in the space. This has been the Green Insider Podcast, powered by eRenewable. We make going green easier. We've got the heroes, just for one.